Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot The Wasteland by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 Phlebas the Phoenician is now in limbo. Phlebas the Phoenician is all of us. The outstanding question is whether there can be resurrection, new life. And then comes along section 5, what the thunder said. And the first picture is the picture of the crucifixion, which puts the point to the fate of Phlebas the Phoenician. Uh, is there a relationship between Phlebas the Phoenician's fate and the passion. After the torchlight red on sweaty faces, after the frosty silence in the gardens, after the agony in stony places, the shouting and the crying, prison and palace and reverberation of thunder of spring over distant mountains, he who was living is now dead. We who were living are now dying with a little patience. The John and I story of the arrest scene goes like this. There was a garden there, and he went into it with his disciples. Judas the traitor knew the place well, since Jesus had often met his disciples there. And he brought the cohort to this place together with the detachment of guards sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees, all with lanterns and torches and weapons. want to uh, do a little aside here on lanterns and torches and weapons. It's a wonderful <clears throat> litany of the tools uh, of culture. Forced out, flushed out by the encounter with the Christ. Uh, the culture relies on these tools to establish itself. Lanterns and torches and weapons. Remember, this is the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, Jesus is the light of the world. This is another version of the hypocrisis. Confront the light of the world in a dark place that comprehendeth this not with these feeble little lan lanterns and torches and weapons. And that is the armory or the, or the stockpile of tools that culture uses for its formation and maintenance. And so Christ is killed by culture as usual, by the lanterns and torches and weapons. And now we are living in the time after the Passion story, after the death. But as with Phlebas, we are in between <coughs> the death and whatever might come after the death. And that's where this poem is now going to, that the poem now is going to search in that wasteland, in that limbo, where, where Christ uh, in the legend harrows hell, goes into hell to bring out uh, those who have been stuck in limbo. <clears throat> he who was living is now dead. We who were living, notice past tense, we too are in it, we too are in limbo. We who were living are now dying with a little patience. We must, Paul says, to be baptized into Christ is to be baptized into his death. And I think here's a recognition that we too are dying with a little patience. And I, I get a hint here of with a little patience of Eliot resisting the attraction of the Christian tradition, but knowing somehow that he is being caught up in its movement. Notice there is a hint here, uh, the reverberation of thunder of spring over distant mountains. The thunder of spring would be spring rain. There's a hint. Here is no water but only rock. Rock and no water and the sandy road. The road winding above among the mountains which are mountains of rock without water. I'll go back and read that but just to stop and make the point. Here we have water, rock, road, and mountains, all, each of which has a religious pedigree in terms of its symbolism, uh, but they're being rendered here 
uh, as arid, lifeless, barren, in the extreme, because there is no water. Here is no water but only rock, rock and no water on the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock, one cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock, dead mountain mouth of carious teeth that cannot spit, here one can neither stand nor lie nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountain, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. There is not even solitude in the mountain, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. If there were water and no rock, if there were rock and also water, and water, a spring, a pool among the rock, if there were the sound of water only, not the cicada and dry grass singing, but the sound of water over a rock where the hermit thrush sings and the pine trees drip, drop, drip, drop, 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 but there is no water. In Exodus 17, the community of the sons of Israel moved from their camp in the desert of sin at Yahweh's command to travel the further stages. Now they pitched camp where there was no water for the people to drink, so they grumbled against Moses. Give us water to drink, they said. And Moses appeals to Yahweh. Yahweh says, strike the rock with the staff. Water comes from the staff. And only later do we find out that that testing of Yahweh kept Moses from entering the promised land. Well, the poem is murmuring here about the lack of water. The poem began by saying, come in under this red rock. Don't stand out there and murmur about the lack of water. Come in under this red rock. This is all in light of what comes later, I, I have to admit. But one of the nuances, certainly not the only one, one of the nuances in this passage has to do with the association between rock and the church. If there were only water, if there were the sound of water, but there is no water. Dry grass singing. We'll come back to these images later because they recur. We're still in the time between the death and whatever might come after the death. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together, but when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you. Now, in the passage about rock and no water, we are on a road into the mountain. The journey has begun, and then there is the murmuring about the fact that there is no water. But still in all, the journey has begun. And once the journey has, been be has begun, and this is the journey after the crucifixion, once the journey has begun, in spite of the fact that there is no water, there is this seeming hallucination that enters into the picture. But when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you, gliding wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? Elliot, in his note, says this has to do with an account of an Antarctic expedition in which, quote, explorers, here's my emphasis, at the extremity of their strength had the constant delusion that there was one more member than could actually be counted. But in fact, this is a version of the Road to Emmaus story in which the two disciples, after the crucifixion, walk along and this other appears beside them and they cannot recognize him, and they engage him in conversation. It's interesting how, by the way, the Gospels speak of this mystery called the resurrection in terms, when you have to t put the experience of the resurrection into a narrative, you always get into trouble because it's something that defies that. 
Uh, but it had to be done because it had, the story had to be told. But when the experience of the resurrection is put into narrative, in several instances, there is this aspect of it, which is that the, the resurrected Christ was unrecognizable. Uh, he meet, meets Mary at the tomb, and he says, and she says, he thinks he's a gardener. And in the Road to Emmaus story, it's, a, and I think what that, the insight that makes available to us is that one who has dissolved the social self, in a sense, gone beyond that, is simply not recognizable by those of us who ha- take our bearings in the world of social self. Uh, there comes along one who's, who simply doesn't conform to that configuration, and so is unrecognizable. And I think that's the haunting aspect of the, of the risen Christ in the tradition. And so here we have the one walking beside you. And now this is not exactly, this is not, you see, it's not until they get to Emmaus and sit down and break bread. Now that's where the rub comes in. That's where the rub comes in. And that's where Eliot, in 1922, pulls up short. It's not till they get to Emmaus and break bread that they recognize him for who he is. And a confession of faith is, it can be accomplished. But already in 1922, in the midst of, as Eliot says, of the Antarctic expedition, at the extremity of their strength, or at the extremity of his, in the midst of his own personal life crisis, he documents this sense of there being another one there, another presence there. I do not know whether man or woman. That comes back to this question about the hypocrisis in a way. This poem has been, has, has in a way, try, been trying to get beyond the male and female issue all the way along. That's why it has used Tiresias. Male and female is the big issue for the 20th century Western consciousness. And this poem in 1922, of all times, is trying to move beyond that already. 50,000 years from now, 1989, people living in 1989 will be regarded as early Christians. That is to say, people who are struggling to come to some understanding of what the Jesus event means in the early stages of its unfolding. Like the, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, we're walking with this strange hooded figure over here trying to figure out what that's all about. What is that sound high in the air, murmur of maternal lamentation? Who are those hooded hordes swarming over endless plains, stumbling in cracked earth, ringed by the flat horizon only. In the Gospel of Luke, the Passion Story includes this piece. Large numbers of people followed him, including women who mourned and lamented for him. Jesus turned to the women and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep rather for yourselves and for your children. For the days will surely come when people will say, Happy are those who are barren, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hill, cover us. For if men use green wood like this, what will happen when it is dry? I don't want to get into a, in, to a involved Girardian interpretation of this, but I think there is a re- relationship here between the rejection of the hooded figure and the inevitable hooded hordes, as Jesus warns in this, in this Luke passage, which is by rejecting the, the offer of the kingdom, we are stuck with the hooded horde. To be confined in the social self uh, is more than we can bear. And if we don't have some way out of it, we will dissolve the social self in something. Mass movements, drugs, television, something. Because it's, it's, a, it's a prison. And so it was, it, I think that's the prediction in the Lucan passage. Having rejected the kingdom, you can be assured that the hooded hordes will follow. What is that sound high in the air? Murmur of maternal lamentation, just to say the prophecy is now coming true. Who are those hooded hordes swarming over endless plains, stumbling in cracked earth, 
ringed by the flat horizon only. Eliot has a note on that in which he quotes the Hermann Hesse passage from A Glimpse into Chaos, in which Hesse is talking about the revolutions in, in Russia and in Eastern Europe, the spread of communism, the, and the Hesse quote is this, already is half of Europe, already at least is half of Eastern Europe on the road to chaos. It goes drunken in spiritual delusion along the abyss and even sings, sings drunkenly and as if singing hymns the way Dmitri Karamazov did. The offended bourgeois laughs at these songs, the saint and seer hear them with tears. So we think this is that th those mass movements, those hooded hordes. Communism is a Christian heresy. It's important to notice that it's that it is a heresy, but that it's a Christian heresy. It's not just any old heresy. I mean, it, it, at least it's a Christian heresy. And that's why it's hooded hordes. You see, it's a parody of the hooded figure in the Emmaus story that is recognized in the breaking of bread. But get the picture here. Ringed by the flat horizon only. Again, the the, the problem is the secularization of the cosmos. And in a world that is ringed by the flat horizon only, there will be hooded hordes because that's the only way available to most people to dissolve the, the torture of the social self, the prison of the social self, is to experience what Eric Neumann called the recollectivization of the human psyche, the hooded horde ringed by the flat horizon only. Now, who are those hooded hordes? You see, he's quoted Hesse saying, looking at, with horror at what's going on in the Russian Revolution. Who are those hooded hordes? And then Eliot says, what is the city over the mountain? And we think, well, if we read the Hesse passage, we think, well, the city is Moscow, Leningrad, Prague, Praetoria. What is the city over the mountain? Cracks and reforms and burst in violet air. Falling towers. Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London, unreal. Boy, there's an apocalyptic passage for you. What is the city? He caught Hesse looking in the wrong direction. Well, he wasn't looking in the wrong direction. He just wasn't looking in both directions at once. And so he catches up Hesse and fills in the other half of the picture. Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London, unreal. The falling towers, we'll, there's many aspects of that I want to deal with them in just a minute, but that's an apocalyptic image. That's the shattering of the conventional appreciation of what culture really is. And now the poem is going to take its plunge into hell. And I think to appreciate it would be helpful to quote from chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. He has just asked, what is the city over the mountain? And he has said, cracks and reforms burst in violet air, falling towers, Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London, unreal. What is the city? And in light of what comes next, Revelation 17, I think, helps us. It says, and the woman that you saw is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her impure passion and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of earth have grown rich with the wealth of her wantonness. So the great city that is... That is uh, the whore that has infected the whole world is in the book of Revelations a whore, a woman. And having asked what is that city and answered that it is all of them, he then says, the poem then says, a woman drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings. Now there is an image of Maya. A woman drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings. 
further on in the book of Re in 17 chapter 17 book of revelation says then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me come i will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers of the earth have become drunk and i saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of jesus when i saw her i marveled greatly in other words it was astounding to be to have the truth of this situation revealed when i saw her as that i marveled greatly when the scales fell from my eyes and i saw what i thought to be a perfectly okay civilized city culture revealed as the whore of babylon i marveled greatly a woman drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings and bats with baby faces in the violet light whistled and beat their wings and crawled head downward down a blackened wall and upside down in air were towers tolling reminiscent bells that kept the hours and voices singing out of empty cisterns and exhausted wells. You know, that is one of those passages of poetry. There are probably about a half dozen of them in existence, which is so, uh, it, it, it is so full of meaning that you could sit and unpack it for the rest of your life. You just, it's just stunning. And anything you say is a great step down from the from the passage itself. Uh, okay, Jeremiah, second chapter of Jeremiah, just the last passage. My people have committed a double crime. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, only to dig cisterns for themselves, leaky cisterns that hold no water. That's the old, we're back to the problem of water. There's no water, and that's because we're, we've dug these leaky cisterns and, and exhausted wells, and then you don't get any water out of that. The fountain of living water you've got to be in touch with. This, I think, is a phased apocalyptic revelation. Apocalypse means the, the, the rending of the veil, the, the dropping of the scale. It's a phased apocalyptic uh, revelation. And I want to start with the towers and then massage it a little bit. The upside-down towers. Now, in the passage just before, there were the falling towers, and now they're upside-down. In uh, Canto 31 of the Inferno, Dante says, Here it was less than night and less than day, and as I stared through that obscurity, now remember this passage in Eliot is taking place at the violet hour, as I scared, stared through that obscurity, I saw what seemed a cluster of great towers, whereat I cried, Master, what is this city? The poem has just asked, what is that city over the mountain? Virgil says to Dante, You who are still too far back in the dark to make out clearly what, clearly what you see, it is natural that you should miss the mark. You will see clearly when you reach that place how much your eyes mislead you at a distance. I urge you, therefore, to increase your pace. Then, taking my hand in his, my master said, The better to prepare you for the strange truth, let me explain those shapes you see ahead. They are not towers but giants. They stand in the well from the navel down and stationed round its bank they mount guard on the final pit of hell. Just as a man in a fog that starts to clear begins little by little to piece together the shapes the vapor crowded from the air, so when, the, when those shapes grew clearer as I drew across the darkness to the central brink, error fled from me and my terror grew. Just as at Monte Regione the great towers crowd the encircling wall, so the grim giants whom Jove still threatens when the thunder roars raise from the rim of stone about that well the upper halves of their bodies which loomed up like turrets through the murky air of hell. It looked like towers, but it turned out to be the pit of hell. So we started with falling towers, and now we're seeing towers upside down. This is the apocalyptic realization about what towers really are. Further on, Elizabeth and Lester 
Remember Elizabeth and Lester in, in part three? Rolling uh, down the Thames. And the end of that little section says they passed the White Tower. But they are living in a pre-apocalyptic cosmos. And they can see the towers as representative, as a, as a, as a symbol of civilization. In the post-apocalyptic cosmos, the towers represent the place of execution, imprisonment, torture, and execution, where the victims die. The hanged man in the tarot is hanged by his foot, and so he sees all towers upside down. The crucified one sees all towers upside down. He sees the world upside down, and the first thing he sees upside down are the towers. What I really want to touch on is the journey down into hell. Dante, the Canto 34 the, uh, of the Inferno, holds onto the back of Virgil's neck and they climb down the flank of Satan. We descended down from tuft to tuft between the tangled hair and icy crest. When we had reached the point at which the thigh revolves just at the swelling of the hip, my guide with heavy strain and rugged work reversed his head to where his legs had been and grappled on the hair as one who climbs. I thought that we were going back to hell because Satan is at the center of the earth where the gravi gravity shifts, and they're going back out the other hemisphere. And so at the midpoint, where Satan is most stuck, they have to turn around and start climbing uh, in the other direction. Okay, all of those things in place. Perhaps I should mention one more, and that is there's a tarot card entitled Tower Struck by Lightning, which is the shattering of the tower. So all of that in place, we have a woman. Now, oh, the one other thing we have to keep in place is that Satan in Dante's Hell is beating bat wings. Uh, Elliot's Satan is a little more enticing. A woman drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings, and bats with baby faces in the violet light whistled and beat their wings and crawled head downward down a blackened wall, and upside down in air were towers, tolling reminiscent bells that kept the hours and the voices singing out of empty cisterns and exhausted well. And we're right at the place where the turn occurs. And so we have arrived at where the poem has been going since the beginning, and that is to the ritual place, the Chapel Perilous. Remember, we're still in the Grail story. And the Chapel Perilous, surrounded by a graveyard, is where the knights go to, as Jesse Weston said in Ritual to Romance, where the encounter with death occurs and the ritual initiation takes place in the encounter with death. Where many people get stuck, where many of the knights, according to the legend, get stuck in the apocalyptic revelation with the encounter with death, are stuck there and have to be buried in the cemetery around the perilous chapel. In this decayed hole among the mountains, in the faint moonlight, the grass is singing over the tumbled graves. About the chapel, there is the empty chapel only the wind's home, it has no windows, and the door swings, dry bones can harm no one. The chapel here is empty, only the wind's home. Notice the grass is singing over the tumbled graves. This is a commentary on, I think, on Isaiah 40. A voice commands, cry, and I answer, what shall I cry? And the voice answers, all flesh is grass, and its beauty like the wild flowers. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on them. One thing I failed to mention about the tarot card, the tower struck by lightning, is the tower's color is flesh. This is really the crisis point, the turning point in the poem. We have entered now the ultimate cave of the poem, crawled down the side of the demonic image and into the hole in the mountain the grave, entered the grave in a sense, which is the per chapel perilous. 
In this decayed hole among the mountains, in the faint moonlight, the grass is singing over the tumbled graves. About the chapel, there is the empty chapel, only the wind's home. It has no windows, and the door swings. Dry bones can harm no one. Only a cock stood on the roof tree. Cockerico, cockerico, in a flash of lightning. Cockerico is the French version of cockadoodle-doo, which is a little too uh, silly for what he wants to accomplish here. So an empty chapel, dry bones, all of that. But there is the cock on the roof tree. Cockerico, cockerico, in a flash of lightning. Then a damp gust bringing rain. That's the turning point in the poem. A damp gust bringing rain as a, respo as a response to or part of the crowing of the cock and the flash of lightning. In the Matthew story of the Passion, Peter denies Jesus three times. As he's denying him the third time, it's the text says, at that moment the cock crew. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the cock crows, you will have disowned me three times. He went outside and wept bitterly. A damp gust bringing rain can be read as tears. Tears coming suddenly unbidden breaking into this arid, dry barrenness. John Climacus, who's a 7th century monk, said, Groans and sadness cry out to the Lord. Trembling tears intercede for us, and the tears shed out of all holy love show that our prayer has been accepted. In other words, tears are both the prayer and the answer to the prayer. They are the point at which the prayer and the answer to the prayer become indistinguishable. I want to read something to you, which I'm sure will break the mood. I shouldn't do it, but it's just too, it's just I can't resist. This is from uh, a, a 1985 article appeared in America magazine. It has to do with the day that Pete Rose broke Ty Cobb's hitting record. If you had eyes to see it and ears to hear it, Pastor Pete Rose presided over the biggest theological lesson of the century during his successful run at Ty Cobb's 57-year-old record. His dirt-stained uniform hardly the icon of a religious man, and he openly professed that baseball was everything, the only thing, his ultimate concern. That's. But in the end, this earthly brawler was a heavenly convert and a powerful preacher by deed. Standing at first base after breaking the record, he recalled looking to the sky and seeing a vision of his father, who died in 1970, and Cobb, quote, looking down on me. He wept openly, and his tears did more to explain the precarious balance between faith and works than did the recently published agreements of Anglican and Catholic theological heavy hitters. This blue-collar hustler, this self-made player, this bragging fact book of every hit made and every record set, this quintessential example of tireless merit, stood in powerless abandonment before a capacity crowd and graciously accepted their freely offered favor with tears of gratuitous joy. After which I, I read that and I thought to myself, the fire and the rose are one if you don't mind me. <laughs> we could read this and substitute Elliot for Rose, and we'd have to change a few things like uh, this white-collar hustler, this self-made player, this bragging fact book of every text written and every phrase well-turned, this quintessential example of literary effort, etc., etc., who set out to break Dante's record. Uh, that is to say, he understood himself in Dante's footsteps. And there is this moment when suddenly the cock crows and a gust of wind brings rain. And that's the moment, the real turnaround. And then he changes the venue. And that's because he's quintessentially 
a 20th century Westerner. For so many 50 years after he wrote this poem, we found we had to change the venue in order to get the meaning. We had to go to the East in order to get the meaning. Ganga was sunken. That's a, that's a, a version of the Ganges, the great sacred river. And this is the point at which the sacred river has receded. It's a drought. The sacred river has shrunken. Ganga was shrunken, and the limp leaves waited for rain, while the black clouds gathered far distant over Himavant. The jungle crouched, humped in silence. Then the thunder spoke. Da. We have to hear that thunder as, as out of the voice of the Tibetan Buddhist. Da. Now, in the Upanishad that, that uh, Eliot refers to in his note, the Lord of Creation, Padrapati, is appealed to by uh, the created world to speak a word of wisdom, a word of instruction. And he speaks the word, Da. And the gods understand this to be the first syllable of damyata, which means control. And the asuras are the, are the demons, not in a negative sense only, but the asuras, understood it to be the first syllable of dayadvam, which means compassion. And the humans understood it to be the first syllable of data, which means to give. And this, by the way, is Eliot's, one of Eliot's strategies in this poem, and that is to speak syllables that can be understood at wherever we need, at whatever level we need to understand them. So he's, he's, he's learned from Padrapati about how to speak. But this is the thunder that brings rain, and the thunder that brings rain speaks these words, and then the poem tries to assimilate the message. The wasteland has existed because these three things have been absent. Control, sympathy, and giving. This is to replenish the wasteland, have this come back into play. Da, data, what have we given? My friend, blood shaking my heart, the awful daring of a moment's surrender, which an age of prudence can never retract. By this and this only have we existed, which is not to be found in our obituaries, or in memories draped by the beneficent spider, or under seals broken by the lean solicitor in our empty rooms. To give, in this poem, is self-giving, self-surrender. And it is a giving of a self so deep that there is no record left of it. No record in our obituaries, in our last will and testament, or even in the memories draped by the beneficent spider. There is no memory left. It is the giving of the core of the self. And the poem says, the awful daring of a moment's surrender which an age of prudence can never retract, by this and this only we have existed. Only to the extent that we can give ourselves. We do not own ourselves until we have given ourselves. We take possession of ourselves at the moment that we surrender ourselves. This is not a commentary on this part of the poem, but Harry Davidson wrote a commentary on the wasteland in which he said something very interesting apropos of this, this kind of self-giving. She said, the solution is not to erase the desire and keep the self. That gives us the barren waste. The solution is to erase the self and keep the desire. This is the moment which Prufrock missed. Remember he said, after he missed the chance, he said, would it have been worth it after all to have said, I am Lazarus, come from the dead? It's the moment that the, that the man in the hyacinth garden missed. He comes back from the hyacinth garden, her hair is wet, and he cannot speak. 
da, da yadvam, meaning to compassion or sympathize. I have heard the key turn in the door and turn once only. We think of the key, each in his prison thinking of the key. Each confirms a prison only at nightfall. Ethereal rumors revive for a moment a broken Coriolanus. Coriolanus is a symbol of arrogant pride who is disdainful of all of the riffraff and who must finally surrender himself to something larger than himself in the interest of his native people. There are two Christian heresies in this part of the poem. One is communism in a larger sense, and the other is individualism. That's the Western version of the heresy. And both are heresies. Neither of them approach the Christian mystery. Individualism of Coriolanus is just the other version of the hooded hordes. Da, damnata, control, but notice what Eliot does with it. The boat responded gaily to the hand expert with sail and oar. The sea was calm. Your heart would have responded gaily when invited beating obedient to controlling hands. The issue here is not taking control but giving control. And that's where the rub comes in for us Westerners. And that's where Eliot ran into his great block. Everything seems to be going along reasonably well until we get to this point. The boat, think now of the, well, you'll see what, just what the boat is. The boat responded gaily to the hand expert with sail and oar. The sea was calm. Your heart would have, would have, would it have been worth it after all? Notice it is a missed opportunity. Your heart would have responded gaily when invited, beating, obedient to controlling hands. How many here would like to admit to being obedient to anything? Of course not. We're modern Westerners, thank you. But the poem recognizes it would have responded gaily when invited, beating obedient to controlling hands. But it didn't, couldn't. And the next line is, I sat upon the shore fishing. Returns to the fisher king. It hasn't been overcome. The situation is still there. And I think the key to understanding this passage is, and is the second canto of the Paradiso, which begins with the stunning lines. O you who in your wish, Dante speaking to the reader, O you who in your wish to hear these things have followed thus far in your little skiffs the wake of my great ship that sails and sings. Dante was, was the hand expert with sail and oar for whom the sea was calm, to whom the boat responded. And he says to his readers, you who have followed thus far, turn back and make your way to your own coast. After which Eliot said, I sat on upon the shore fishing. Dante goes on, do not commit yourself to the main deep, for losing me all may perhaps be lost. You other few, Dante says, who have set yourselves to eat the bread of angels by which we live on earth, but of which no man ever grew replete, you may well trust your keel to the salt track and follow in the, narrow, in the furrow of my wake ahead of the parted waters that close back. You few who have eaten of the bread of angels may follow. The pun is angelicus. It's, it's a reference to the Eucharist. This is Dante at the beginning of the Paradiso saying, to his readers, friends, the, the mass of the catechumenate is over. The liturgy of the word is over, and what follows now is the liturgy of the table, of the meal, of the Eucharist. And only those who have partaken of that can comprehend this. And Eliot, at this moment, when he realizes that da means damyata, to be obedient to the control of something other than his own gyroscope, 
like all of the rest of us Westerners, can't do it. He can't do it. He can't enter into the communion of the Pontus Angelicus if it requires submission. And so he ends up on his own coast fishing as the, as the fisher king again, with, however, the arid plain behind me. So the, so the great joy at the end of this poem is the arid plain is behind him, and the, and the defeat at the end of the poem is that he's still fishing, but that he knows what has happened. He says, shall I at least, and there's everything loaded on those words, at least set my lands in order. I sat upon the shore fishing with the arid plain behind me. Shall I at least set my lands in order? London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Poi sascose nel foco che glia fina. Quando fiamuti caladon. O swallow, swallow. La prince da catene alla tour aboli. These fragments... I have shored against my ruin. These fragments I have shored against my ruin. That's a commentary on the whole poem. But they are, Poi Sascosi del Foco Cagliafina is from Purgatorio 26. The poet Arno Daniel is saying, he says to Dante, with grief I see my former folly, with joy I see the hoped for day draw near. He's dying with a little patience. This whole poem is looking forward to what's coming next. After he speaks, Dante says, Then into the fire that refines he hid himself. And this is what this line is. That's what this line means. So the, the voice of the poem now returns to the fire that refines. Quando fiamuti Caledon is a passage from Virgilium Veneris, which is uh, a, a song to new life into the spring, having to do with Philomela, the Philomela story. Well, here's the quote. The maid of Tyrius sings under the shade of the poplar trees so that you would think love songs came from her mouth and not the complaint of a sister against a barbarous lord. She sings, we are silent. When will my spring come? When shall I be as the swallow that I shall cease to be mute? You see that, when will my spring come and I be the swallow and cease to be mute? Most profoundly is the, the opening line of Tennyson's The Princess, O swallow, swallow. And this is, I think, the crux of it. Here are two stanzas from Tennyson's poem. Tears, idle tears, I know not what they mean, tears from the depth of some divine despair. Rise in my heart and gather to the eyes in looking on the happy autumn fields and thinking of the days that are no more. Dear as remembered kisses after death and sweet as those by hopeless fancy feigned on lips that are for others deep as first love and wild with all regret, O oh, death in life, the days that are no more. Tears from the depth of some divine despair. La Prince the Prince of Aquitaine at the Ruined Tower. The first line of that poem from Gerard de Naval is, I am a man of gloom, the widower, the unconsoled, the Prince of Aquitaine at the Ruined Tower, one who is robbed of his inheritance, who is determined to get it back. Speaking of one who's determined to get it back, why, then I'll fit you. Hieronimo's mad again. Which comes from uh, Kids, the Spanish Tragedy, the subtitle of which is Hieronimo's mad again. Hieronimo's son, Horatio, is killed, and those who kill him ask Hieronimo to help them stage a play to entertain the king of Portugal. And he says, why, then I'll fit you. Say no more. When I was young, I gave my mind and applied myself to fruitless poetry, which, though it profits the professor not, yet is passing pleasing to the world. He said, I'll help you put on a play. I'll write the play for you. And in the play, the murder scene of the play becomes the revenge of the people who, has, who have killed his son. But in the course of 
constructing the play, Hieronimo says, I am never better than when I am mad. Then methinks I am a brave fellow. Then I do wonders, but reason abuseth me. And there's the torment. There's the hell. And his madness consists, well, as he puts the play together, he says, each one of us must act his part in unknown languages. So in the play that Hieronimo constructs, a play within the play like Hamlet, people speak in different languages, which is what's happened in this poem. And his closing comment is, why, then I'll fit you. And that there's a biting irony in that. There's bitterness in that, which is I'm going to try to get back at the world that has robbed me of my heritage. Why, then I'll fit you. I'll speak in tongues. Hieronimo's mad again. And it will sound like Babel until it sounds like Pentecost. It will just sound like Babel until it sounds like Pentecost. Hieronimo's mad again. Datta, dadvadyam, damyata, shanti, shanti. The Sanskrit peace, which Eliot says in his notice, peace that passes understanding. This is the end of Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.